Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Today we're going to do our third and final part in this series we're doing on accusation. And uh, two weeks ago we started this series, we looked at at Satan's accusations uh, and how they work with us as individuals, how he plants thoughts in our, in our minds about God, about each other, about ourselves. Last week, we looked at it from a whole new twist. We looked at uh, Satan's accusations against the nation of Israel. And also at the end, we looked at Jesus as our high priest, which is just, uh, aw- just an awesome truth. And today, I want to finish off this series, and we want to look at accusation against the church as a corporate body. So we've looked at Satan's accusations against the individual, as us as individuals. We looked at his accusations against the nation of Israel. And today we look at Satan's accusations against the church. We're going to go back to Revelation 12 and 13. I'll develop it from Scripture, but let's just pray, and then, and then we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you for answering our prayers last week that we got through the entire program exactly uh, without any rain, and people had time to look around the camp, and that was awesome. So we thank you that you are Lord and, uh, of the weather and sovereign over those things and that you answer our prayers. And we thank you for the amazing round tables. Uh, I think it was almost 80 church leaders that were there. Incredible. What you're doing in this country and how you're using us. We're, we're just blessed. Thank you for another round of baptisms. We just had a round of baptisms two weeks ago. We get another round uh, today. We're excited about that. People's lives are changing. And thank you to Jesus that you are our high priest. And even when Satan accuses us, we will conquer and win in the end. And so I pray you would just bless our time together as we study this in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 12. We're going to go back there. I set the table for this a little bit two weeks ago. We're going to go back there and develop also this. I want to show you scripturally. I mean, we know that Satan attacks the the church with accusation. And I've already told you that that's what the message is about today, but I want to develop it for you biblically before we really apply it practically, because you have to see this in the Bible and be really convinced of it, what Satan is up to. And once you're convinced, convinced of it, then when we talk practically, it'll just make a lot of biblical sense, what's happening in the world around us today and what we can expect to come in the, in the coming years. And so Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 is actually telling us a picture of the end. This is what's going to happen three and a half years before uh, Jesus returns as Satan will be cast down onto the earth. And so we'll pick it up where we picked up uh, uh, in week one of this series. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. So this is what's going to happen in the future. Right now, Satan still splits his time, earth and heaven. And he's called the accuser, as we developed two weeks ago, because this is one of his main jobs. This is what he spends a lot of his time doing. This is one of his weapons of choice to use against us is accusation, all right? And so the accuser, that's what he's called. His title is, he's the accuser of our brothers, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. This is, Satan is relentless in his accusations, And I'm going to skip a verse because we're going to come back to verse 11 at the end of this message. It's a wonderful passage. But anyway, we're going to end on good news. I will tell you that. A little bit of bad news first, but we will come to good news. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Okay? And then we carry on in verse 13. And and, uh, what's he going to do after he's thrown down? Well, we see this in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth... He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now, I just, I I have to glaze over this. We could spend, we could spend an entire message just digging into uh, Revelation 12 and all the, and some of the symbols here and stuff, but I'm going to oversimplify things just a little bit, 
And because uh, I don't, I, there's lots we have to get to, okay? But basically, the woman here symbolizes the nation of Israel. And I can develop that for you very easily through the rest of the chapter. It's just this message is not the place to do it. But basically, uh, Satan's going to come down to earth. And as we saw last week, without even using this passage, when he comes down, he's going to focus on destroying the nation of Israel. And we looked at the reasons for that uh, last week. Okay, but he's going to come after the woman who had given birth to the male child. And the male child there is, there's, there's shadows, there's two here, things. The male child here. is the Messiah, that's Jesus, who was birthed out of the Jewish nation. The male child here also represents the church, who was, again, birthed out of Israel, birthed out of the Jewish religion, birthed out of the Jewish people, came the church. Okay? And so Satan comes down to earth, and he's pursuing the nation of Israel. We looked at the reasons last week, who had given birth to the male child. All right? Very important. Now we keep going, verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And he's quoting here from Daniel chapter 9. It's, he's talking about three and a half years, okay? Verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. So Satan is really exercised about destroying the Jewish nation and the Jewish people, okay? And, uh, and so the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a, with a flood. His energies just bent on evil and the destruction of the Jewish people. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Okay? And so what we see here is God is going to supernaturally intervene, and he's going to keep... The, he, Satan's going to try with all his might. He's tried already before, many times in the past. We looked at history last week. He's tried many times in the past. He's going to try again in the future to destroy the Jewish people, but God is going to protect them, not in the sense that they won't suffer. He is, Satan will kill many again, and there will be awful suffering for the Jewish people in the end, but God is going to supernaturally protect them and keep them from being wiped out by the devil, okay? And so as a result of that, well, we're going to come to ourselves now, the church, Verse 17, as a result of God uh, keeping Satan, I mean, as powerful as Satan is, and Satan is powerful, but as a result of, of God, he says, no, you're not allowed to destroy them and wipe them right out. Satan is going to respond, and he responds in verse 17 there. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's where we come into Revelation 12, Okay. So up to this point, if you're not a Jewish person, you're like, well, this is really sad, and we need to pray for them, and this is really awful, but it doesn't really hit home for us until you get to the end, and you see the devil is going to be so furious, he's going to try his best, again, for the reasons we looked at last week, to destroy the Jewish people, but when he sees that God will not allow it, he becomes so furious, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of all the rest of her offspring as well, and he turns on, on us, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, and so this is going to happen. Nothing in Scripture. This is the inspired Word of God. This is not going to be wrong. This is not going to end up being an exaggeration. This will uh, happen. And of course, this is not just in the future. You say, well, this is all going to happen in the future. But of course, we know this is already happening now. It's not that Satan isn't warring against the church and the Jewish people now. He's already doing it now. This is just for telling the time when it will explode to its more, most awful climax. But already Satan is doing this now. If he hates us at the end, he already hates us now. He's already warring with us now. And so the question is, how does he war against us? So we, we read this symbology. We read, you know, the dragon is going to become furious and he's going he's to make war. He's going to come on the earth and he's going to make war against those of us who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Well, what does that look like, right? I mean, are we going to see a red guy with horns and a pitchfork uh, running all over the earth, stabbing Christians and Jews? Okay. I'll never forget, my dad traumatized me awfully when I was a kid. 
uh, he had this devil mask. And uh, yeah, this is, your, this is your pastor, Pastor Ray. And uh, I, I mean, I, I still, you know, thinking of it, I sort of shake. I'm sitting in the back seat of our little Honda Civic. I mean, those things were tiny back then, okay? Four of us, and we didn't all have boosters, I'll tell you that right now, okay? But I'm just a little guy. And uh, I remember pulling up in the driveway, and a Dad's fumbling with something in the front. I haven't gotten out of the car yet. And all of a sudden he says, hey, Chris, look at this. And he's got, he turns around, and he's got this devil mask. And I'm like, <laughs> I bawled for two days straight. I've had nightmares ever since. But anyway. Is it? Yeah, poor guy. Thank you, Mark. But anyway, so we read, you know, Revelation 12, he's going to make war on the saints. What does this look like? I mean, is it a guy with a devil mask running around hurting us? It's, it's not what it's going to be. How does the devil war against us? And the thing you have to understand is he works through various human systems, okay? And I want to just take a few minutes now because we're going to continue on into Revelation 13 because I want to get to accusation and where the role accusation plays in this. But you have to see, as we talk about the devil warring, and we talk about the devil attacking us, but what does this look like, okay? Again, he's not a he's not, not pitchfork man running around doing stuff. We're not going to see him physically like that. But what does he work through? What's the evidence of his work today? What will it look like at the end? And the thing you have to understand is that the devil, he has power now under God's sovereignty, but he has enough power now that he raises up and empowers and directs human systems to accomplish his evil ends. And so I just want to give you a few examples. For example, political ideologies and evil rulers. So let me just make that more concrete. Um, for example, let's just talk about one, and there's many I could, I could look at. Uh, you look at communism, for example. Communism was invented in the mid-1800s, okay? So, I mean, if you go back 200 years, nobody knows what communism is. I mean, now we all know what communism is. 200 years ago, they didn't. This thing in the mid-1800s comes out of nowhere, like, literally, it comes out of nowhere. It sweeps across the globe, okay? And you say, well, are you saying, uh, you know, communism is, is satanic? Well, there was a satanic element. I'm not saying it's all satanic, but there was a satanic element to it. In 100 years, it goes from nobody's ever heard of this before to this thing has been invented, and it is actually ruling over a large chunk of the earth. And, in co and communism was used as a tool to hurt and attack the church in particular. Uh, estimates, I did a, I've done a bunch of research over the years, and again this week I was looking up stuff, but um, some people estimate that over 50 million Christians were killed by communism in a space of a century. So think about this, you're looking at the, you're looking at the, the, the human history, a timeline, and you've got human history playing out, out of nowhere comes this thing called communism, and in one century over 50 million Christians are dead, okay? That is, that is, that's Satan's work. He's not a guy with a pitchfork running around killing people. He works through human systems. He raises up these beast sim systems that he uses. And of course, there's human stuff going on in there too. I'm not saying we don't just blame all the devil, but some of you might be sitting there in shock and you're going, I mean, are you mentally unstable blaming communism and political ideologies like that on the devil? Uh, I don't think I'm mentally unstable. And if, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't know, okay? Um, <laughs> You can ask my, my wife about that. But at least this is biblical, okay? I just want to remind you of Ephesians chapter 6. I constantly remind you because our rational mindset in the West rejects spiritual ex explanations like this. So I want to remind you again, Paul himself believed this. Ephesians 6, 11 to 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's Paul talking. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I could show you many other examples, but Satan raises up evil rulers. He raises up evil political ideologies and whatever there might be human elements and there's other social, sociological elements. I don't deny that, but Satan is certainly involved and you can see it in the way he uses these things to attack God's kingdom. Okay, so this is, when we talk about Satan warring against the saints, this is what we're talking about. He works through human systems. He doesn't just work through political ideologies and evil rulers. He also works through false religions. Okay, and we could go through a whole host of examples here. But again, let's just look at this, the, 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 the timeline of human history. You know, I looked at communism already. You have nothing, you have nothing. Out of nowhere, this thing comes up. And 100 years later, 50 million Christians are dead. That's, 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 that's Satan's handiwork. But we can talk about government systems, even in free countries. Paul talks about in Ephesians how the rulers and the authorities, Satan gravitates to the places of human power, and he uses human systems and power to attack God's kingdom and God's people. And so even within free countries, he gravitates to places of power. It's so opposite the way God, our God works. Isn't it true? When Jesus was born, he wasn't born as a prime minister. He wasn't born as some wealthy aristocrat. He wasn't born as the general of an army. He was born as a manger. Jesus loves people, not systems. I mean, he uses systems. I'm not against systems. The devil hates people and gravitates to systems. And so the devil gravitates even within free countries. And that's why it's no, it's no mistake. Why? You go in Western countries, okay, all over the globe, and you go to places, and you, you look at different systems, like you look at the education systems and stuff, and within the education systems, you have many, many wonderful people. You have many godly people. You have many people who are committed to teaching kids and loving kids. It's not, the, it's not so much the people that are the problem, but then you look at the systems, and wherever you go, it's not just Canada. It's not just our province. You go to any province. You go to any Western country. If you go into the leadership, if you go into the intricacies of the system, these systems are all, are all permeated by radical ideologies. How come is that? It's not just one country. It's not like, well, this country happens to have some radical ideologies in their education system, and this one doesn't. It's like they all do. Well, why is that? Again, I'm not, this isn't again, te- no, no, the people, many of the people working in the system, again, wonderful people, godly people, we need them there. And they love kids, that's why they're there. But if you look at the system itself, radical ideologies, and you think, well, you're just being paranoid. I mean, this has been talked about in many books and articles. Uh, McLean's uh, Magazine, this is, one of, this is a, our, our leading secular magazine here in Canada. It's not, not a Christian publication at all. They just did an article about this a couple of years ago about, uh, called Stop Brainwashing Our Kids, but about the radical ideologies that have permeated and infiltrated our education systems. Uh, doctor, a couple of years ago, Dr. Miriam Grossman, and she is also not a Christian. She wrote a, she wrote a book about this, but she's a, she's a doctor, just a secular person. And she wrote about this as well in a book called You're Teaching My Child What? It's in our library. But she talked about just the radical agendas that have permeated education system. This is how the devil works. This is how he wars against us. You can have good individuals within the system, and we need those good individuals there, but he permeates the, the system, and he uses the system to fight against truth and to fight against God and to fight against the church. This is how he wars. He's not a guy with a, just a guy with a pitchfork running around. And of course, we could talk about the media, but I won't belabor that one. I think that one's fairly obvious. So I want to go back to Revelation 12 and 13. We're going to keep going because it says, we just read at the end of Revelation 12 that the devil is going to war against those of us who hold to the commandments of Jesus. So he already is at war. 
But when you read that, he's at war with us, you can now understand more of what, he's, what, God, what the, the prophecy is talking about here. He's going to be working through uh, evil systems, okay, human systems. So anyway, we go to the end of 12 again and, and 13, and let's just pick up and keep going and see what's going to happen. And he, that Satan, stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Now, I don't want to get into all this symbology here either, but just so you understand what's going on, I'm, I'm going to get to the accusation part here in just a moment. When, you see a, when he sees a beast coming up, again, this is not talking about uh, Satan being a monster. He's Godzilla. He's really big. He's climbing buildings and hurting people. Okay? The beast is it's a human system. I just explained to you how the devil wars against us through human systems. What we're going to see is a beast rising up in the end. It's going to be an empire centered in the Middle East, but it, it'll be a political system and a religious system all tied together with satanically inspired media and everything, and their whole goal will be to destroy God's people, uh, us as believers and also the Jewish people, okay? So I saw a beast. So Satan is furious. He's going to make war on us. He's going to raise up this political system, this religious system. Powerful nation, powerful empire, okay? And now we're going to get to the accusation part, part. Skip ahead a couple of verses. And the beast was given a mouth. So this system, this nation, this empire, this coalition of nations made up of a media, made up with media and, and, and political stuff and government systems, this, this empire, this beast was given a mouth. I want you to notice this. He's given a mouth. Remember, Satan is the accuser of the brothers. One of his main things that he does is he's spewing slander and accusation. One of the main things this empire does is, he's, is with the mouth. We often think of the beast, it's going to be big armies and pers physical persecution. It will be that as well. But the first thing you need to understand is this, this empire is satanically inspired with a mouth. It's a mouth. Satan attacks first with accusation and slander. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth, and by the way, I just love the sovereignty of God. 42 months is exactly three and a half years. Satan does not determine how long this goes on. He has exactly a certain amount of time, and God says on the, day, on, on the 42, 43rd month, on the first day, it just, pff, done. So that's something to be happy about. But anyway, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints, that's us, and to conquer them, which is a sobering passage. For three and a half years, he will actually even be allowed to conquer us. God in his sovereignty will, will allow us to be crushed and persecuted by him. But again, I want you to notice that the war, most of the time when we think of, of the devil's war against us, again, we think of armies, we think of uh, you know, physical persecution, but the first thing you need to understand is it's with his mouth. His first attack against the church, against God's people, is always with his mouth. It is with accusation. It is with slander. It is with blasphemies against God and against the Bible and against our beliefs. And when it talks here about the, the beast being given a mouth, it's not just talking about one person, you know, just the Antichrist Sunday is going to rise up and he, on TV he's going he's to spew things. You have to understand the devil is working through human systems. Imagine a time when every newspaper article has an anti-Christian bias or slant. Every movie that portrays Christians portrays with an anti-Christian bias or slant. Every news report, every music video, 
I mean, really, this actually kind of sounds starting to sound familiar already to some of you, but just imagine a place where the whole culture, it's not just one person talking. The devil doesn't just work through one person. He works through human systems. Imagine a place where every system is turned against us. Every cartoon your kids watch is filled with subtle mockery of the things of God and morality. And every school class and textbook teaches against God and morality in the Bible and all these sorts of things. That's what's coming. That's what's already started. This isn't just going to happen at the end. This is just, the end is just the climax. That's when it gets the worst. But this has been happening throughout history. This has been happening throughout history. This has always been the devil's strategy to work against the church and the Jewish people as well as we looked at last week. I mean, if we go back the first 300 years, um, I was just doing some reading again this week. I've been reading some church history books lately and just fascinating, fascinating books. But If you look at the first 300 years of the Christian church in the Roman Empire, right after Jesus' death and resurrection, the early church's birth, it explodes into life. The Holy Spirit is working. Many people are getting saved. But what you don't read about in the Bible, when you read in the history books, you find that during the first 300 years of the the church's uh, uh, life in the Roman Empire, uh, in the Roman Empire, the most vicious rumors constantly circulated about Christians. And this is what allowed the persecution to happen. See, you you can't persecute people that everybody thinks they're nice people. I mean, that's why accusation always comes before persecution. That's why accusation is always on the front end of Satan's attack against us as individuals and as a church. It always starts with accusation and slander because people won't hurt people that they think they're they're nice, honest, decent people. But if you can convince everybody that these people are kind of sick and they're backwards and they're pulling us all back and they're bigots, and they're hurting people. If you can convince them that there's a group of people within their midst that are like that, they'll turn their anger on them, and that's when the persecution can start. So you look at the first 300 years of church history, and the most vile rumors were spread continuously throughout the Roman Empire about Christians. Christians were accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper. Many Romans believe that when they took the Lord's Supper, they were eating people. And so, so we have this new wacky sect, and they're eating people. And, oh, okay, let's go kill them and burn them. People believe they were cannibals. People accuse them of being atheists. That wouldn't be such a bad thing now. Satan doesn't use that one on us anymore. But because Christians refused to worship all the Roman gods, people said, you're atheists. And back then, that was a bad thing. You're atheists, and you eat other people. Oh, get out of here. And they believed it. Christians were accused of being enemy agents of Rome and being unpatriotic because they wouldn't worship the the emperor. Christians were accused of incest because they called each other brother and sister. And you say, some of this, I mean, we laugh. It's so ridiculous, right? It doesn't make any sense. Because they call each other brother and sister, this is Satan's accusation. It doesn't have to make sense. It certainly isn't logical. It's pretty much all very far-fetched. But here's what Satan knows. If he knows the same thing, Hitler, Hitler knew this. When he started up his propaganda machine against the Jews, him and Joseph Gable, his propaganda minister, they had a plan. Hitler wrote about it in Mein Kampf already in his book in the the mid-20s. He said, if you tell somebody something long enough and enough times over 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 a long enough period of time, they'll believe it no matter what it is. And then they purposely made up a list of things they wanted to say about the Jews and they just put them in the newspaper and on the radio and on you know, in the school textbooks, and they repeated them to people thousands and thousands of times until people really believed that the Jews were killing Christian children and and eating them at Passover. That was one of the lies about the Jews. 
and all kinds of stuff like that. They just convinced the German people that the Jews were animals. And then eventually, once you convince them of that, you can then persecute them and kill them. And so the devil, so, so we go, like, how could they ever have accused the Christians of cannibalism and incest? It doesn't make any sense. Like, and the Christians are going, how can you accuse us of that? It doesn't have to make sense. It, it's not fair. This is how the devil works with accusation. He just turns a river of slander onto the people of God, and he just trains that slander on them, and he attempts to drown them in an ocean of it. And so for 300 years, periodic, many periodic and brutal uh, persecutions broke out on Christians because people believed many of these lies. So you say, well, what is, what is Satan using against us in his river of slander today? I mean, obviously, the cannibalism one doesn't work anymore. Uh, you know, the, the atheist, atheism, atheism one doesn't work anymore. So what's he using today? He's, he's got the same strategy. He just has to change up the lies every now and then. And so he's changed them up now. I'll tell you just a couple. I can't get to all of them, but I'll just give you two. We'll just talk about two of the ones that the devil is using today. Remember, this is Satan's attack. This is the vanguard. This is how he's done it throughout history. This is how he's going to do it in the future. This is how he's doing it right now. One of the lies he wants to spread about us right now, and by the way, some good news is coming. It's going to get a little worse just for a few minutes, and then it will get better. And I have some press. Thank you. Good. See, it is going to get better. Let's, it's like the dentist. Okay, I, I give you your root canal first and your sucker on the way out so you can have another root canal in 10 years. Um, here's, here's one of them. Here's, what he, here's one that he's trying to get on us right now is Bible-believing Christians are hateful, ignorant bigots. So, or some version of this one is what he's spreading right now. And I don't have to defend this one for very long. You go on any comment board... Any, you, you find just a free press article, a CNN article, doesn't matter, Canada, the U.S., could be the National Post, could be anything. You look at an article that talks about abortion or Christianity or uh, same-sex marriage or anything like that, and then just go to the bottom of the article. Well, never mind the bias that you'll find in many of these articles by the reporters, but just scroll to the bottom of the article and read the comments that normal people, regular people, regular Canadians are posting at the bottom. You will find the most vile hatred against Christians imaginable posted in the comments. This is what people believe about us, and over and over again, you'll get some version of this. Christians are backwards. Christians are hateful. Christian beliefs are hurting us. It doesn't matter what it is. They're attacking us like this. And I, I, I mean, I could, I could share with you, you know, many, many uh, stories. Um, I won't do that right now, but I mean, abortion, uh, all of them, just a couple, you know, a couple years ago, there was a pro-life group at our very own University of Manitoba here in Winnipeg. They put up a display they want, they want to be pro-life. And immediately they had protesters, protesters that were saying, you hate women. And it's like, well, no, 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 this doesn't have to be, it's not about women. We just actually don't want babies to be killed. Yeah, but that's because you hate women. And, and you go, this isn't even rational. We can't even have a discussion here. And it's in the paper and people are upset. Uh, why are they upset? Well, because you hate women and you Christians don't want women to have choice. Well, we're not, this isn't what the, we're talking about babies. But you see, it doesn't have to make sense. This is what accusation is. Christians are cannibals. That's what got used on, on us for 300 years in the Roman Empire. It doesn't have to make sense. It can be totally far-fetched. It do doesn't have to have any rooting in the truth. But he just trains a river of slander, and he just pounds it home and pounds it home, and eventually people believe it. And after that, they can begin to persecute us. We, of course, see this with the whole uh, traditional marriage, same-sex marriage debate. It's no longer a case of, you know, hey, you can believe what you believe. And we can believe what we believe. And that's what, I mean, that's what a free country does. 
So, hey, we as a church, we're glad for people to have a freedom to believe whatever they want to believe. But it's no longer even a case of let's have a reasoned debate about what is marriage and what is gender and what do you guys believe and, and why do you believe that? It's not even about that anymore. It's just if you believe that, you're actually hurting people. Like believing that, that marriage should be only between a man and a woman and sex should only be a, between a man and a woman. If you believe that now, we're actually accused of hurting people with same-sex attraction. It's like, it's gone from, hey, we have two sides with different beliefs. It's gone to, your beliefs are actually hurting other people and causing them to be depressed and causing them to be suicidal and holding our society back and you guys are hateful bigots and you don't want them to have equal rights. And it's like, wait a minute, where did all this come up that we hate people? We don't hate people. But this is Satan's river of accusation. And of course, once you can begin to get that, hate, that accusation to stick, it takes a little bit of while, but once you can get that river of accusation to stick, you can begin to persecute them. And so we have situations like the Trinity Western University situation. Many of you are aware of that. Christian University, I spent my first two years of university there before transferring uh, to U of M here. Um, wonderful university. Um, and they, but they happen to have in their student handbook, uh, because they're Christian university, they have a code of conduct. Uh, a lifestyle standards agreement that while you're a student there, you agree to not, uh, you know, get involved in drunkenness and gambling and sex outside of marriage, which of course is a Christian institution is defined as between a man and a woman. This is just a very little, and every student signs it that while you're there, you're not going to engage in these because this is a different university than other universities because it's a Christian university. Well, since then now, the law societies in every single province across Canada, our own province, BC, all the way to the Maritimes, has decided they've, they are now challenging. They're saying anybody who graduates from Trinity Western University cannot practice law here in Canada. You say, well, why wouldn't they be able to practice law? Because anybody that would graduate from a university that has a student, you know, lifestyle agreement like that must be bigoted automatically. And you go, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't have to make sense. And it's a small step from there. And the thing is, you would think, well, they're just going to, this, they can't actually do that. This is a free country. This whole situation will blow over in a moment. And of course, Trinity Western University graduates can be lawyers in Canada. It's not, it's not blowing over. It's not going away. The fight, the, the, the fight hasn't been won. It's still in the mix. Lots of provinces are saying, no, they won't be allowed to. Well, it's a small step from there. If Trinity Western University graduates are bigoted because of a lifestyle agreement, it's, not, it's a very small step from there to say any Christian who believes in the traditional view of marriage is a bigot, and no Christian should be able to practice law anywhere in Canada. Forget if they went to TWU or the U of M. It doesn't matter. It's a very small step. And it's a very small step from there to say if they're so bigoted they can't be lawyers, why would we let them be doctors or teachers? And it's a very small step from there to say, if they can't be doctors or teachers because they're such bad bigots, if they're business owners, why would we let them, you know, bid on government contracts and stuff like that? See, the river of accusation, once it, once it gets flowing, once it has momentum, it's the vanguard of Satan's attack against the church. This is how he wars against us. And you know, so many of us, I've spent way too much time in my life getting all upset about it and trying to figure out, we got to answer these ridiculous accusations. And then you realize, yeah, I mean, we do. We can answer them, but they don't have to make sense. They don't have to make lo be logical. At some point, we have to realize this is what our brothers and sisters around the world have gone through for 2,000 years. And we're going to take some of it on the chin too, and it won't be fair, and it won't be right, and it won't be logical, and that's just how it is. And 
God in his sovereignty is going to form Christ-likeness out of us in this too. I want to look at one more line, then we'll look at the practical side of things. Not only are they trying to pin hateful, ignorant bigots on us, there is also a vast rewriting, which you can only say, the only way this works is if there really is a devil out there. But there is a vast rewriting of history going on right now, so that Christianity, which over the last 2,000 years has been by far, by the grace of God, the greatest force for good this world has ever seen. I mean, Christians, we have books in the library, you can look uh, in the history of Christianity, but, but God-fearing, believing, Holy Spirit-filled people are the cause of everything from hospitals to schools to all kinds of the best good works the world has seen in the last 2,000 years are because of Christianity. And yet, in light of that, in fact, our whole society, democracy, and freedom is, is in main built off of, originally was built off of Christian principles and Christian people. See, we think, how could someone go back to history and now what we're seeing in, is our whole society, our universities and our schools are rewriting history to make things look exactly the opposite of how they've actually been. And now when the media talks about history, we're, Christianity is now being smeared as one of the biggest forces for oppression, ignorance, and bigotry in history. And, and our kids are you, we picking this up in the media. And Christians more and more, are, are, we're apologizing for our past. Certainly some bad things have been done. But we don't have to apologize for our Christian past. Christianity has been a force for good. But they're taking the Crusades, a, uh, some, some events that happened about a thousand years ago that were done in the name of Christ, unfortunately, by the most ungodly, unchristlike people there are. And they're smearing Christianity and saying this is what Christianity is about. Well, first of all, everybody that engaged in the Crusades actually forgot about what Jesus did because our founder didn't pick up a sword and spread it that way. So to say that it is Christian is only that to say that some monsters took on the name, the title of Christian and tried to use it. But it's not any way how our founder acted. But they're using the Crusades to smear us. They're blaming Christianity now for all the evils of colonialism in Africa and Asia. They're blaming Christians for slavery, even though if you read anything about William Wilberforce or do any actual research, you'll find that Christianity was the greatest force for overturning slavery. And most of the people involved in slavery were the most godless people. Unfortunately, some people did use the Bible to defend it. But if you actually look at history, it was Christians that fought it for the most part, and there were a couple of Christians that were in slavery, but for the most part, slavery was run by godless, evil people. Science, Christianity today is accused of retarding progress and opposing science throughout history, even though throughout history, some of the most important and prominent scientists were Christians. And of course, there are a number of prominent atheists now who are blaming religion in general and singling out Christian, Christianity in particular for killing um, millions and millions of people, which is why Richard Dawkins, who has sold millions of books, millions of books, so he has some influence in our culture, has now come out and said publicly that teaching religion to children is child abuse. Now, that is, you say, oh, that is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. That, that, that's Satan all the way. You, it's like you just want to blow your stack and go, this is so stupid. But you can see when they begin, when when influential people begin to be able to say things like that publicly, you can see where this is going. And it's going to get repeated again and again and again, and you know where this is going to go. If they can get child abuse to stick to us too, then eventually they're going to change the way we're, we school and what we're allowed to teach our kids, and can we even have Christian education? This is how accusation works. So many of you are sitting here today and you're going, well, you just ruined my day. <laughs> what are we supposed to do about this? 
How do we combat Satan's accusations? It's so unfair. It's so far-fetched. It's so hateful. It so doesn't make any sense at all. What are we supposed to do about it? Well, the Bible does talk about this. And we go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter said this. It's so wonderful to read, read the Bible because they went through this stuff too. That's the first thing. We're not the first ones. We're not the only ones. So it says this in 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong. He said, I mean, it's just, they're going to accuse you. This is part of Satan's work. He is the accuser. So of course he's going to use human systems to push accusation. But though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorifying God on the day that he visits us. Now notice that they will see your good deeds and glorify you immediately or glorify God immediately is not necessarily what will happen. He says, this is the first way we respond to accusation is we live such good lives. We live such good lives that maybe we don't turn them around now, but someday when Jesus comes back, they'll have to admit, actually, yeah, your people did live in such a way that they show, showed us the light. You say, well, that's not that great news. Well, we'll get to some better news yet, but the first thing we do is we just live such godly, respectful wonderful lives that we actually put their accusations to shame. They might not recognize it now, but someday they will have to admit it and they will give glory to God. You did shine the light to us with your behavior. Peter repeats this one chapter later. He says this, chapter 3, verse 14, because obviously accusation is a big deal in their day too, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. We should start giving that out on cards. You know, there's just certain verses that don't make it onto the Hallmark cards, Right? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when it will happen, Part of our lot in life. As long as Satan isn't locked up in hell yet, it's going to happen because he's an accuser and a slanderer. When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be, should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter again says here, lead such blameless lives that you put the world's accusations to shame. In other words, let's not give them any actual ammunition to use against us. Amen. Let's not give them any actual ammunition to use against us. Let's live, I mean, I want you to look at those two verses, those two words there. If you could underline those, uh, Sarah. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Is this how we behave out there in the world? We're going to be accused of everything but that, but let's not live to their accusations. Let's live according to our Lord and Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? Gentleness and respect. Let's think about that for a moment. Gentleness and respect. Is this how you post on Facebook? Oh, he went there. Are you bringing the name of Christ and the church into further accusation and slander by the tone with which you post on Facebook, by the things you post on Facebook, by the things you say in public? See, part of this is we have to be wise. We have to stand for truth. We have to stand for godliness. We have to stand for the word of God and morality and things like traditional marriage. Of course we do, but we have to do it with wisdom and we have to do it with gentleness and we have to do it with respect. We have to be wise as 
Serpents, right, and as innocent as doves. Gentleness and respect. This is what we fight accusation with. We don't fight fire with fire. We don't fight accusation with accusation. We don't fight yelling with yelling. We fight it all with gentleness and respect and love. I'm having to learn this one. I'm not good at this one. I've messed up on this one many times in the, in the past. But thank good God is gracious. Ah, we got a new day and a new time and he forgives us. But how about at work? Do you treat your employee? I mean, there's nothing worse you know, we can know all the right doctrine, but if you're an employer, you have tremendous amounts of influence over people. And if they say, you know, he goes to church all the time, but he's a hypocrite, all he cares about is money, and he just runs over people, if that's what gets attached to you, you've given them more fuel. The devil's already got a river coming our way, but you are giving him more fuel to attack us even more. We need to live such good lives among the pagans. Goodness, purity, and love their accusations are put to shame. We need the Holy Spirit for this. There's a second thing we have to do, and that is this, pray, exclamation mark. Did I mention that there's a prayer summit next Sunday? Pray. Acts chapter 4 recounts an amazing story. I want to read to you. The religious re leaders, have, are, they've arrested the disciples. Accusations are flying, slander. You guys are going to ruin the nation, and blah, 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 and we're going to beat you and kill you and all this stuff. I want you to see how the disciples respond coming out of this. It's totally not fair. Is it fair? No. Is it rational? No. How do they respond to accusation and persecution? Acts chapter 4, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So what did they do? Their first reaction was, call a prayer meeting call a prayer meeting. And then what happened? Skip a couple of verses there. Look upon their threats. This is them praying now. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, notice this wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have prayed. When they had prayed, if they hadn't called a prayer meeting, no power, no boldness. But when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm going to tell you something. The church here in North America is not going to survive the onslaught of accusation that is coming if we don't get on our knees and start praying. It's just the truth. That's just biblical. In fact, I, we could even just say this. A lot of the churches in North America already aren't surviving the level of accusation we're facing now and are withering and dying either by compromising in the face of accusation or just withering and dying because of the lack of prayer. But it's going to get worse. We just, I mean, Revelation 12 and 13, it's going to get worse. That's the climax. We haven't reached the climax yet. What it is now, it is going to get worse. If we're going to make it through it as a body, we're going to have to pray. Because out of prayer comes, first of all, the boldness and the courage to carry on, and also the power of the Holy Spirit comes on us. He protects us. He infuses us. He gives us life. Amen. We're going to have to pray. You say again, oh, Chris, this is such bad news. There's no hope for us. Things are bad already, and they're only going to get worse. Well, let's go back to Revelation 12. No, not there. <laughs> There's good news in there, okay? I skipped a verse before. 
Verse 10, we read it again, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And I skip this next verse. And they have what him? Conquered. Let's say it again. One, two, three. They have conquered him. That's us. We win in the end. I mean, he's going to unleash such an ocean of accusation on us that we can't even imagine it right now. We're already feeling like we're drowning at times. And he's gonna, it's going to get much, much worse. But the amazing thing is, in the end, we win. We know the end of the story. We, we conquer him. Amen. Now, how do we conquer him? I love this. Rest of the verse. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How do we conquer Satan and his accusations? And the first thing is by the blood of the Lamb, which I really love because we don't conquer him by our efforts. We don't conquer him by our arguments. We don't conquer him by our perfect lives because we are going to mess up. I said before, we've got to live such pure, good, blameless lives knowing that we're still going to mess up and there have lots of things to confess. So we're not going to conquer him by just getting pumped up and trying to beat him. We conquer him by the blood of the lamb. Jesus has already won this one. He's already bought us. He's already our high priest rec- representing us in heaven. So yes, the devil's going to just turn a slew, a river, an ocean of slander on us, and he already is beginning to do it. And in the end, it all can't affect our standing with Jesus. It can't affect our souls. He can't take away our relationship with Christ. He just, he can't take it away. See, Jesus bought us with his blood, which means if you're following Jesus today, Jesus owns you. The devil can accuse you all he wants. He can smash the church to smithereens, but he can't take the fact from you that you belong to Jesus. He can't touch your soul. He can't touch your relationship with Jesus. And then I'm going to skip over the, you know, the word of a testimony. We don't have time to talk about that one. But I want to go straight to, for they love not their lives unto death. Here's the amazing thing about being bought by the blood of Jesus. It's so powerful that even when we lose, we win. This is the thing about the blood of Jesus. They love not their lives even unto death. Even when we die, we win. You say, that doesn't sound like winning to me. What is the worst thing? What is the worst thing the devil can do to you? Kill you? Is that the worst thing the devil can do to us? That's about the worst thing he can do to us is he can kill us. And what happens to those of us who have been bought by the blood of Jesus when he kills us? We go to heaven. It's kind of a lose-lose situation. It's like kicking a fire hydrant. I don't know how, but it just came to mind just now. (laughs) I mean, if you're the devil, you know, I'm going to kill you. Woo, I get to go be with Jesus. Okay, fine, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to spread the gospel. Arg! <laughs> That's the blood of Jesus. How do we overcome them? By the blood of Jesus, we're already bought. So they love not their lives under death. I mean, we're going to spend all of eternity with Jesus, so we've got nothing to lose. We may as well spread the gospel and stand for truth and love our enemies like crazy because this is just one little tiny bit of time and then it's eternity. And he can't do anything to us but kill us and get us to eternity quicker. In fact, the more Satan attempts to crush the church, the more the fragrance of Christ is spread to others, which is why the early church father Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Paul said, the more we share in the sufferings of Christ, the more the power of God is released in us. The more we are accused. Jesus was accused. You remember that? He knows all about Satan's accusations. 
They accuse them of everything. He's a liar. He's a blasphemer. He's against the Jewish people. He's going to wreck the temple. Ba, 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 ba. They came at him, and what did he do? They said he was silent like a lamb to the slaughter. That's how he handled accusation. He just took it. Paul says in Romans 8, it's when we share in the sufferings of Christ. What were Christ's sufferings? Well, part of it was just physical crucifixion. But part of it was he went through accusation just like we're going to go through accusation and are already going through accusation. And Paul says when we share in the sufferings of Christ, that's when God's glory and power come alive in us. So part of it is we don't fear this thing. We say, Jesus, we're our master. If our master had to go through accusation, we're going to have to go through accusation. The beauty is he's already won the battle for us. The kingdom of God is a paradoxical kingdom in that it is the only kingdom where the more its people die, the more it wins. The more we die to ourselves, the more we die to our flesh, the more we love and serve our enemies, the more we are crushed and accused and persecuted and killed by the devil, the more God's kingdom grows. I finish with this verse. Jesus said this in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, I'm not holding on to our lives. By saying, Lord, it's yours. We're just going to obey you no matter what because we're going to spend eternity with you. I want to pray for you and then we're going to celebrate with baptism today, which is also exciting. Lord Jesus, accusation is already coming against your body, the church. It's been coming for 2,000 years. It's, it's already been coming against our church specifically here at Southland. And so Lord, we don't look forward to that part of things in the future but we do look forward to the fact that you have promised that we overcome. And so Lord, I pray those first two practical applications. I pray first of all, Jesus, that here at this church, your Holy Spirit would do a work in our lives and we would be a people who live such good, gentle, respectful, pure, and honest lives that we put the accusations to shame. Empower us to be that kind of, those kinds of people. Also, Lord, may we become a church of prayer. I pray that our prayer summits would grow prayer in our cells would grow, our prayer ministries would grow, that this would truly become not just a church that talks about prayer, but a praying church. A praying, glorious church that's going to rise above the suffering that's coming against us and the accusation. A pure and spotless bride that you'll be proud to come back to this Southland family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.